we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline that says, The Washing by Christ. Josh, I have some extra bulletins down here if you need them. We saved some. Probably have some more in the back too, I'm not sure. Uh, We're in John chapter 13 uh, in our sprint through the Gospel of John. The uh, and verses 13 through or verses 1 through 17, and I know your bulletin says 1 through 20, but once again I cut some verses off. And uh since Rich is preaching next week, I handed verses 18 to 20 to Rich. So, the, uh, you know, I got through verse 17 and I was done. So, it's just how it goes. The, uh, let's read these verses from the Gospel of John. Famous uh, passage, many of you are familiar with it. Some of you may not be, and I encourage you to listen carefully to the Word of God. Now, before the Feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward You will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks powerfully to us. We ask that it would speak to us this morning, that we would hear it, that it would become part of us, that it would change us. We ask that you would do this in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was reading this passage this week, I was reminded of another story that I had read about a long time ago. And uh, the writer of that story uh, writes about uh, taking his wife out to the movies. And this was back in the early 80s. And they went to see the movie, and some of you may remember it, called Sophie's Choice. It was a rather intense drama set in the time frame of World War II in Europe, and part of this movie takes place in a Nazi concentration camp. It was a huge movie back in 1982. It won an Oscar for its star, Meryl Streep. And the climax of the movie comes when Sophie who's played by Meryl Streep, is standing there and she's holding her two children in her arms. And she has to decide which one of her children she is going to hand over to the Nazis for sure incineration. She has to give up one of her children. Hence the title of the movie, Sophie's Choice. Well, the guy's out there with his wife at this movie, and he's not much taken with dramatic movies. And he's kind of looking around, trying to decide if this is a good time to go get popcorn. And so he looks over at his wife, asking, you know, does she want it buttered or not buttered? And and she's sitting there, and she's just sobbing, totally overcome by the intensity of the movie. And she cried all the way out of the theater. And she cried in the car all the way home. And she cried for the next two days. He was getting concerned. (laughs) And when she was finally able to talk about it, she said, I want to tell you why I was so upset. I pictured having our son Todd in one arm and our daughter Shauna in the other and having 30 seconds to choose which one was going to live and which one was going to die. How in the world would I ever make that choice? See, she had not only placed herself in Sophie's position, for a little while she had become Sophie. And you see, if we're going to have a love for today's world, a love that empathizes with other people, then we're going to have to learn to walk a mile in their moccasins, so to speak, to put ourselves in their place for a little while. And only then will the hardness of our hearts start to crack a little. Only then will we be able to treat people as Christ has treated us. And here in John 13, we have this well-known story of Christ washing the disciples' feet, having placed himself in the position of a slave so that his disciples would see what the love of Christ really looks like in order that they and us might be able to love others as he loved us. 
And so the first thing we see here is the power of Christ's love. That should be the first blank there in your outline. The power of Christ's love. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How does Jesus prepare his disciples for what's about to transpire? Over these next few months, actually, we're going to follow our Lord in the final few hours, few days of his earthly life. This is the transition point in the Gospel of John. Chapters 1 through 12, we have followed uh, all those chapters. It's called the Book of Signs, and it deals with all the miracles and all the dramatic uh, statements of Christ. Um, and the seven signs, the seven miracles in particular that John has singled out that portray the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. But now we go to chapter 13, and we've moved to the upper room. And this is now the book of glory. We've gone from the book of signs to the book of glory. And Jesus sort of veils himself from the world and now is disclosing something of his glory, something of the relationship he has with his Father in heaven, And Calvin says in his commentary on John's gospel, if the other gospels show us Christ's body, John shows us his soul. John Stott once said, if scripture is like a temple, then John 13 through 17 is the inner sanctuary. In a way that's characteristic of John's gospel, this is the beginning of his upper room discourse. It will cover five chapters. His public ministry is over, and these next chapters in the Gospel of John tell us all those things that Christ thought were important enough to tell his disciples before he was crucified. And the dominant theme of these chapters is love. And the first thing we see is that love is totally, completely, thoroughly unconditional. We see here in the beginning of John 13, Jesus loved his disciples fully. He loved them all. It says he loved them to the end. And he washed their feet, even the feet of Judas, whom Jesus knew would betray him. And Jesus knew all about these 12 men. He knew their doubts. He knew their confusion. He knew their cowardice. He even knew the evil that was in their hearts. And he loved them all anyway. And today, Jesus knows all about us. He knows all about you and me. He knows our doubts. He knows our confusions. He knows our cowardice. He even knows the evil that is in our hearts. And guess what? He loves us all anyway, each one of us. That's unconditional love. But if there's one thing that you and I don't deserve, it's the overwhelming love of Christ. And so also we see here the love of Christ is unchanging. It's unchanging. It's not only clear that Jesus uh, um, here in the upper room uh, loves them all, uh, but he loves them here just as much as he did when he called them to follow him. You think about that. He loves them just as much as he will when he will look down upon them from the cross. He loves them just as much as he will at his resurrection. 
He loves them just as much as he will when he reigns, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He loves them just as much as when he returns in glory and majesty. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. His love never changes. Christ's love is unconditional, unchanging, unfailing, uncompromising. It's a never-ending sacrifice, so to speak. It's not like, well, I loved you last week, I'm still dealing with this week. That's what I would do. Christ's love never changes. It's a forgiving attitude of deep affection and concern for you as long as you exist. And today, Christ's love for you is just the same as it was for his disciples back then. He loves you now just as much as he loved you when you first received him as Savior and Lord. He loves you now just as much as he will love you when he returns to earth to claim all those who belong to him. However, and this is important, the kind of powerful love that Jesus demonstrates here is often, and I mean often, unappreciated. Jesus has loved these men incredibly much in the last three years. They often don't seem to appreciate it. Some of them don't care. They find it meaningless. Some don't understand. They find it confusing. Some of them don't like it because they're antagonistic towards what he's doing. They're opposed to the changes that he is bringing. He's not meeting their expectations. Some of them don't like it because they're just flat afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. They're scared that because of his love, they'll have to get involved. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, it just doesn't sound all that much different than today's world. The world is full of people reacting to Jesus in just the same way. They find it uh, meaningless. Some don't care that he loves them so much that he died for them. They need to be loved so they can see the love of Christ can truly make a difference in their life. Some don't understand what Jesus has done for them. They find it all so confusing. And they need to be loved so they can fully comprehend just how much love Christ has for them. Some don't like Christ because he upsets their carefully planned life. Or they get angry that Christ loves them in spite of all the bad stuff they've done in their life. They don't like it... Because they know they don't deserve his love. They know they can't earn his love. If they can't earn it, they don't want it. They need to be loved in spite of themselves. (coughs) They need to be loved so that they can see that their plans, their past, their abilities, their sins are irrelevant when it comes to the love of Christ. That he loves them with or without that stuff. He's not looking out saying, I think he's good enough or I think she's going to be good enough or I think they're going to get over this or they'll get past that. His love is unconditional and unchanging for them. 
The world doesn't get that. And there are some who don't like Christ because he scares them. There's afraid there's a there there's going to be a catch somewhere. They want to see the fine print. That just sounds too good to be true. They need to be loved so they can see that it's not only good, but it's also true. And if the power of Christ's love overwhelms them, then it's critically important that they're able to also see the humility of Christ's love. Look at verses 2 through 11, the humility of Christ's love. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. The text here says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose from supper and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and took a basin of water and began to wash the disciples' feet. And notice first that he just started to do it. It wasn't announced. It was not announced. He made no proclamation, no explanation, no announcement. He just did it. It should have been done already, but it wasn't. It had been forgotten. So when Christ stops the meal, which is just getting started, to do this, it marks it as special. Now the disciples would never forget it. I don't want to trifle with the text, but it's a very profound lesson. Sometimes we're called to serve others when we're blinded by our own tears. Sometimes we're called to serve others when we can't see the way forward, when there's darkness all around, when we're pressed by our own difficulties. And at that time, we're called upon to serve others. And it's very tempting to say at those times, can't you see that I'm busy Can't you see my pain? Can't you see my needs? Can't you see my burdens? I mean, it's it's tempting for us to say on those occasions, I just don't have time for this right now. I don't have time for you right now. I have to concentrate on myself right now because of what's going on in my life. And it may be in our relationship with our spouses and our relationship with our children. It may be in most intimate of settings. And yet Jesus is saying, my hour has come. 
I know what is before me. I can see it clearly now. It dawns upon my mind, on my consciousness, what lies before me. He is facing a time of incredible darkness and difficulty, and yet he does this astonishing act. He's thinking about others, and he's thinking about his disciples, and he's thinking about their needs. And he takes off his outer garment and wraps a towel around himself and begins to wash the disciples' feet. I thought, how many acts of love don't get done because they don't have the right amount of recognition attached to them? How many people haven't been helped because no one would see it or know about it or ask about it, or because there was no reward attached to it? And Jesus doesn't wait around for the prominent and public tasks, nor does he wait for someone to ask. He just picks up a towel and goes to work. So first, this humble demonstration of Christ's love is not announced, but also notice that Jesus is not embarrassed. I'm sure this shocked and surprised the disciples. Put yourself in the position of one of the disciples lying around the table. The way uh, that people ate dinner in those days was they all lay down on long mats, which were actually called couches, that were arranged around the outside of a very low U-shaped table. Okay, you have to get Da Vinci out of your mind right now. And that was a very low U-shaped table, and they had these mats, and they would lie down at the table on their side and eat with one hand. And before they entered the dining room to lie down at the table, they would normally have their feet washed. This was usually done by a household servant or slave as soon as they entered the house. But now Jesus and his disciples are at a borrowed house, and there's no servant, no slave there to do this job for them. So Jesus takes off his outer garments, which means he's now dressed as a slave, And without any embarrassment at all, just grabs the water basin and kneels down at his disciples' feet. Can you imagine what they must have thought? What's going on here? What's he doing? Why is he doing that? One of us should be doing that, not him. They must have been seriously embarrassed to see Jesus taking the slave's role. But Jesus wasn't embarrassed. He's acting very forthright and deliberate. He's there to teach them how to love others into his kingdom. He's not there to impress them. Luke 22 tells us the disciples had just been arguing over who was going to be the greatest. They're ready to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. You know, I was reminded of the story of a well-known Christian leader uh, gave a talk at a prayer breakfast here in the D.C. area. And uh, a number of years ago, and as actually it was Chuck Swindoll, many of you have heard him, read some of his stuff. And he noticed after the program, he, he didn't know a lot of the people and politicians. This was one of his very first trips to the D.C. area. And he noticed after he finished the program and it was all over and he's kind of greeting people. And a guy got up in the back and just started stacking chairs because obviously they had to come in and vacuum the room. So he decided to go over and thank the guy for helping out. And he went over there, and the guy said, well, you see, I have a real busy schedule, and I'm not able to get here to help set up. So the least I could do is help clean up by stacking the chairs. And so I had a little chit-chat, nice, and he thanked him. And and, uh, then he was leaving the room, and his host uh, came up to him and said, what did the senator have to say to you? He said, what? 
He said, well, I saw you over by that stack of chairs talking to Senator Hatfield. And I was just wondering what he had to say. And he was so struck. Here at the time, one of the most powerful men in the United States, former Senator Mark Hatfield, was helping to stack chairs after a prayer breakfast. He wasn't embarrassed. He was just doing something that needed to be done. Humble love is not announced, and nor is it easily embarrassed. But most important, it's not weakness. It's not weakness. We see that when Jesus finally gets around the table to Peter, Peter challenges him. Poor Peter. Actually, I love Peter. He only opens his mouth to change feet. You know, so he tells Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Essentially, he's saying, Jesus, don't do it. And Jesus says, what I'm doing, you do not understand. Now, afterward, you will understand. Jesus is telling him and us, sometimes we're not going to get it. Sometimes things happen in our life that we don't understand at the time. Sometimes we have to deal with things that we wish we didn't have to deal with, that we wish God somehow knew better than to put that into our life. And we wind up questioning God. (coughs) Not out of anger, although that can happen sometimes, but simply because we don't understand what's happening in our life at that moment. And Jesus says, someday... Afterward, you will understand. And for us, afterward can be one of two things. After this event is over and things become clearer. But more often, biblically, afterward means after this life is over. We'll understand in heaven. We'll see clearly in heaven. We'll know for certain in heaven. I've shared before, I had a seminary professor that would Uh, always answer whatever the question was. You'd ask him a question, and he would say, well, this side of paradise. And there would always be two answers, the this side of paradise and that side of paradise answer. And, uh, you know, I was struck. uh, I remember C.S. Lewis' comment, famous comment. He says, the the most used word in heaven will be O. (laughs) He says, because you'll get there, and you'll be like, oh, That's why that happened. Oh, that's why I went through that. Oh, that's why uh, this thing went on. And he said, that'll be the the biggest word that we use. We'll get there and we'll go, oh, because then finally we'll get it. But Peter is obviously not satisfied with the afterward answer. He goes on, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's exactly what he's saying to us today. You have no part with Christ if he hasn't washed you clean from your sins. Unless the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, has taken away your sin, then you cannot have an authentic relationship with him. It's not possible. And Peter understands this somewhat. But he just can't keep his mouth shut. So he opens it again. Says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And I really wish, you know, to be there, just see how Jesus reacts. You know, now the third time, Peter, Peter. You know, Peter is seeing this humble love of Jesus in action, and he's trying to tell the Lord, you know, this is how you should do this. I love that. Let me give you some advice, God. And Jesus says, the one who bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, because they would have walked there, dusty streets. He says, wash your feet, and it's completely clean. And he's telling Peter, I'll do what's necessary. 
I know what I've already done for you. I know what needs to be done for you. Later, he will tell him near the end of our passage, a servant is not greater than his master. So if the master becomes the servant, where does that put the servant? On the same level as the master. By becoming a servant, our Lord did not push us down. He lifted us up. He dignified sacrifice and service that's done out of love. Now keep in mind the world in which they lived. The Romans had little use for humility. The Greeks despised manual labor. And Jesus combines both of these things together as he washes the disciples' feet. And in demonstrating power and humility through service, we're given the example of Christ's love. Verses 12 through 17, the example of Christ's love. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We're told that he loved them to the end, back in verse 1. He never gives up on them. Think about that. These 12, including Judas, who are so slow to believe, who are so unteachable, who are so uncomprehending, whose vision is earthbound, who are so self-centered. Remember, they were just arguing over who was going to be the greatest. You know, I'll get to sit at his right. You'll get to sit at his left. Sorry about the rest of you guys. You know, and as the crisis deepens and things are getting worse, they're going to deny him and flee from him and run and fickle and frail and fleeting is their faith, Jesus loves them. It's not a pretty sight. There is something profoundly disappointing about these men, and yet he loves them to the end. And his love isn't blind. He loves these men. He chose them. He's been with them for three years. He knows them better than they know themselves. He knows all about them. He knows them at their worst. He knows what they're capable of doing. In John 13, he gives a prediction about two of them in this very upper room. He'll say something about both Judas and Peter. And he sees them in the worst possible light, and he still loves them. He knows the fickleness of their heart, and he loves them. He's going to deny himself. He's going to lay down his life. He's going to die for them, and he's going to die for us. And in so doing, we are made clean, and that's what we need. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ because he took away our sin when he died in our place on the cross. But we're still in this world, you may have noticed. We're still walking through the muck, and our feet still get dirty, and we're still contaminated uh, by sin as we go through our days. And life can be a difficult affair, and we pick up some of the evil of the world lying all around us. And we still get dirty, and we still need daily cleansing. We need to go before the throne of grace every day and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm unclean. First John 1 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he 
is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's an illustration of that. Think of the sacraments. You get baptized once and for all. In a few weeks, we'll have communion again, but we come to communion over and over again. We need to come to Christ. And we need to keep coming to Christ. I love the motto of the missions group called Teen Missions. It's a missions agency that operates summer work projects for teenagers. And they go overseas and assist missionaries with uh, building projects. And they help out by doing some of the hard physical labor that the missionaries often don't have time for. And the motto of Teen Missions is, get dirty for God. I think our mission team that just returned from Bay St. Louis can identify with that motto. Rebecca called me while she was down there. She told me they were putting mud on a house. It's a joint compound. Sealing the cracks between sheets of drywall. And at some point in the conversation, she said, I think this is the dirtiest I've ever been in my whole life. And that kind of dirty is a good thing. And sometimes in order for us to be faithful to Christ, we need to roll up our sleeves and get dirty for God. When there's a job that needs to be done and you look around and there's no one else to do it, guess what? You need to do it. If Jesus can do it and if we belong to him, then we have no right to judge any menial task beneath us after our Lord and Master has already performed it. To be given the job of feet washing was not pleasant. You were the lowest of the totem pole of authority among slaves. You're not only a slave, you were the least of slaves. And imagine in that day, there's no black top. There's no nice, neat sidewalks with little gardens next to them. There's no covered work boots. It's just dirt and dust and mud. Now, we're told at the very beginning, it's the time of the Passover. The feast of the Passover is coming. That's not an irrelevant detail. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions in one year there were over 275,000 animals brought into Jerusalem during Passover to be sacrificed. This is not a clean place at this time. Jerusalem was not that big. 275,000 animals is a lot of animals. You're walking through the same streets that they're walking through. It's crowded and dirty and dusty and muddy and there's animal dung all over the place. And here is Jesus, God in the flesh, taking on the form of a lowly servant and washing the filth off the feet of his men. He becomes the slave. He sets aside his position, his authority, his rights, his seniority, and he does the job that no one else would do. And it's such a common theme with Christ that it would take a couple of messages to speak about those things that Christ did that no one else took the responsibility to do. Now, if that isn't scandalous enough, he does something I simply have difficulty understanding and probably would not have done. He washes Judas's feet. Imagine if you had a friend, and for three years you have fed, loved, taught, provided for, protected, prayed with, invested in, and you had never sinned, so you had never sinned against this person. 
And for some reason, they hate you and despise you, and they decide to betray you and turn you into people that want to kill you. And you know this man is going to leave you and turn you in. And tomorrow you're going to be nailed to a cross because of his betrayal. And yet you invite him over to have dinner and you get on your knees and wash his filthy feet. All the while realizing the very feet you're washing are going to walk out on you and have you killed. That is hard to understand. And I think part of the problem it's hard And part of the problem we have with this, part of the problem I have with this, is that we think we're better than Judas. Judas is a betrayer, a thief, and a murderer. And the reason Judas bothers me so much is because I'm a lot more like Judas than I am like Jesus. And each of us sitting here, if we're really honest about ourselves, should come to the conclusion that we resemble Judas more than Christ. Have I stolen from Christ and not given to him what is rightfully his or wasted it on something ridiculous? Yep, I've done that. Have I pretended to be religious when inside I was a hypocrite? Yep, I've done that. Am I guilty for his death on the cross? Sure am. I can't make a judgment against Judas without recognizing the Judas in me, and neither can you. And yet Christ still washes us. Has Christ come to me Has he humbled himself before me? Has he loved me? Has he provided for me? Has he not only washed my feet, but also my soul? Has he remained faithful even when I am not? Yes, he has. Why? Because Jesus is different. He's holy. He's other. Unlike me, Jesus washes the feet of his betrayer. He washes his feet and demonstrates humility towards him. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he feed him, love him, care for him when it doesn't make a bit of difference? And Jesus did this because he loved the Father. Jesus knew what he did wasn't for just for Judas. It was also for the glory of his Father. His love for his Father not only gave him the reason and the motivation for washing Judas' feet, Gave him the reason and motivation for keeping his father's law, for never sinning, for going to the cross. It's all for the father. Judas, I don't think, would ever truly appreciate what Jesus did, but the father does. Judas may never fully understand. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus did this, but the father does. Judas is not going to love Jesus in return, but the father did. Jesus didn't do it just for Judas. He did it for Judas out of love for the Father. (coughs) And that's the key. That's the key to serving like Christ. We don't love and serve because what we're going to get or how we're going to be noticed or what we can brag about. We serve like Christ because of our love for him and because of our love for the Father. And therefore, by his example, he's given us divine directions. So we turn to the disciples. They've been left lying there around the table, staring at clean feet. They're totally self-conscious in their shame, I would think. And Jesus asks them, very simply, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. He's letting them and us know that now that we know this, he's not just given us the example, he's actually gone and told them, I've given you an example. In case you didn't get it, somehow, this was an example. You should do this. You know, and I imagine most of us, if asked, would gladly wash Christ's feet. If we could remember to do such a thing, they obviously didn't. But even after Jesus washed all their feet, even after he got all the way around the table, no one got up and washed his feet. He finished washing their feet. The text says he washed their feet, put on his outer garments, and resumed his place. There were 13 pairs of feet around that table, and only 12 of them got washed. No one washed Jesus' feet. And now Jesus insists on washing ours, and he bids us to wash our neighbors. You see, he didn't wash the disciples' feet just to get them to be nice to one another. He's going to use these men to establish his church and build his kingdom. He's going to send these men out into the world to turn it upside down. And through the love of Christ flowing from them, they will serve the world, friends and foes alike. Go back one more time. Look at what happened there. Put yourself in that place. Use your imagination. See yourself at that table in the midst of these disciples. It's not easy watching Jesus wash these feet. If you're there, to see the hand of God massaging the toes of men, somehow it's just not right. The disciples should be washing his feet. Nathaniel should pour the water. Andrew should carry the towel. But they don't. No one does. And rather than serve, Luke 22 tells us they're arguing over who's the greatest. What disappointment their words must have brought to Jesus. I'm the number one apostle. Well, I'm more spiritual than you are. Hey, you guys are crazy. I've brought more people to hear Jesus than anyone else. And as they argue, the basin sits in the corner, untouched. The towel lies on the floor, unused. The disciples see these things, but they don't see them. I mean, they know what they are. They know why they're there, but they just don't notice them. And nobody moves except for Jesus. And as they bicker, he stands, but he doesn't speak. He takes off his robe. He takes the the basin uh, and the uh, pitcher of water, pours the water into the basin, and he kneels before them with the basin and begins to wash. And the towel that covers his waist is the towel that dries their feet. And it's not right. Isn't it enough that the hands that will be pierced uh, in the morning, must they also scrub grime tonight? And the disciples, do they deserve to have their feet washed? Their affections have waned. Their loyalties have wavered. And you just want to yell out at, at them. Look at John, Jesus. This is the same John who told you to destroy a city. Yeah, we always think John was the quiet, meek one. Call down fire from heaven on him, Jesus. Same John demanded you censure a Christ follower because he wasn't in our group. He ain't one of us. He doesn't get to say any of the good stuff. 
Why are you washing his feet? And James, skip James. He wanted the seat of honor. Him and his brother want special treatment. Don't give it to him. Give him the towel. Let him wash his own feet. Let him learn a lesson. And while you're at it, skip Philip. He told you there wasn't enough food to feed the large crowd. You tested him. He flunked. You gave him a chance. He blew it. And Peter, sure, those feet walked on water, but they're also the feet that thrashed about in the deep. He didn't believe you. Yes, and he confessed you as the Christ, but he's also the one told you you didn't have to die. He doesn't deserve to have his feet washed. None of them do. When you were about to be stoned in Nazareth, did they come to your defense? When the Pharisees took up the rocks to kill you, did they volunteer to take your place? You know what they've done. And what's more, you know what they're about to do. You can already hear them snoring in the Garden of Gethsemane. They say they'll stay awake, but they won't. You'll sweat blood, they'll sweat logs. They're just going to sleep. And you can hear them sneaking away from the soldiers. They're making promises tonight, and they're going to make tracks tomorrow. Look around the table, Jesus. I mean, you're there. You got 20-20 hindsight. You know what's going to happen. Out of the 12, how many will stand with you in Pilate's court? How many are going to share the Roman whip? And when you fall under the weight of the cross, which disciple will spring to your side and carry your burden? None of them will. They're going to get a guy out of the crowd to help. Not one will be there to help you carry that cross. Don't wash their feet, Jesus. Tell them to wash yours. And that's what you want to say. There's just this visceral reaction that something wrong is happening here. Why? Because of the injustice? Because we don't want to see our king behaving as a servant? Because God on his hands and knees, hair hanging around his face? Do we object because we don't want to see God washing feet? Or do we object because we don't want to do the same? Stop and think for a minute. Don't we have people uh, like the disciples in our world? Double-tongued promise breakers? Fair-weather friends? Talk first, think later. What they said, what they did are two very different things. Or maybe they didn't leave you alone at the cross. Maybe they left you alone with the bills. Or your question, or your illness. Maybe you got left at the altar, in the cold, holding the bag. Vows forgotten, contract abandoned. And logic says in our world, fight back. Jesus says, fill up the basin. Logic says, bloody his nose, punch him out. Jesus says, wash his feet. Logic says, she doesn't deserve it. And Jesus says, you're right, but you don't either. I don't understand how God can be so kind to us, but he is. He kneels before us and takes our feet in his hands and washes them. And please understand that in washing the disciples' feet, he's washing ours. You and I are in this story. We're at the table. That's us being cleansed, not from our dirt, but from our sins. And it's not just a nice gesture. It's a necessity. What does Jesus say? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He didn't say, if you don't wash you, why not? We can't wash ourselves. We can't cleanse our own filth. We can't remove our own sin. Our feet must be in his hands. Don't miss the meaning here. To place our feet in the basin of Jesus is to place the filthiest parts of our lives in his hands. If you let him. 
The water of the servant uh, comes only when we confess that we're dirty. Only when we confess that we're caked with filth, that we have walked forbidden trails and followed the wrong paths, and we'll never be uh, cleansed until we confess that we're dirty. We'll never be pure until we admit that we're filthy. We'll never be able to wash the feet of those who have hurt us until we allow Jesus, the one that we've hurt, to wash ours. You see, that's the secret of forgiveness. You'll never forgive anyone more than God has already forgiven you. And only by letting him wash your feet can you have the strength to wash the feet of another. It's hard to imagine. It's still hard to consider the thought of forgiving the one who hurt you. And if so, if you've had those struggles, you've been hurt, you've got a secret, you've got dirt and filth and grime and sin in your life, go back to the upper room. Watch Jesus as he goes from disciple to disciple to disciple. Can you hear him? Can you hear him splash the water on the feet? Can you hear him shuffle on the floor onto the next person? Keep that image of Jesus moving with the basin and the towel. Next to that image, put another image, a family crest, a coat of arms, so to speak. You know, because I think there's a coat of arms for us as Christians. There's a Christian family crest. A coat of arms usually has some uh, crest or emblem or insignia. And then usually underneath there's a motto. You know, and our coat of arms, yours and mine, has a basin of water on a field of towels. And below it is the motto, as I have washed your feet. And we know because we belong to this family, this is our family crest. Because we're part of this group that Christ has cleansed and claimed. We know how the motto ends. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.